16 this morning. Acts 16. Continuing our verse-by-verse, chapter-by-chapter study through the book of Acts. Acts 16, actually picking it up in verse 16. A little bit of background here just to remind you of what's going on. This is Paul's second missionary journey. And so he is out on this missionary journey here with uh, Silas and Timothy and Luke. And he's at the city of Philippi. And we're going to see what happens here this morning. I thoroughly enjoyed this. I hope you're as blessed by this as I was. There's a lot of fascinating verses in here. There's a great testimony to finish this up with somebody getting saved. And I hope you're blessed by this. So let's do the smart thing. Let's pray real quick and we'll jump right into it. Heavenly Father, as always, you wrote this. Just pray that you would teach us through your spirit. Give us ears to hear, not just to listen, but to listen and apply and to grow. Help us to grow in you in our walks, our lives, our marriages, our relationships, and all things. And we lift this up in your name. Amen. Let's jump right into this. Acts 16, verse 16, continuing Paul's second missionary journey. Now it happened as we went to prayer that a certain slave girl possessed with the spirit a divination met us, who brought her masters much profit by fortune-telling. This girl followed Paul and us, and cried out, saying, These men are servants of the Most High God, who proclaimed to us the way of salvation. And she did this for many days, but Paul, greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And he came out that very hour. Now, this is an interesting passage, to say the least. You know, if we were doing topical messages, this is probably one that would never get picked on. Hey, let's do a topical on the slave girl possessed by a demon. It just probably wouldn't happen. So with that being said, what's going on here? Well, very simple. There's a slave girl, and she's owned by these people. She has a demon in her, and they're using this and manipulating this for fortune-telling. Some of your translations may say soothsaying. Now, we need to understand a couple points here. First off, there is no passage in the Bible that says that demons can tell the future. We need to make sure this comes across. This is very important. When you look at the attributes of God, God is all-knowing, all-present, and all-powerful. Those attributes are God and God's alone. Anything of that next realm of the angelic being or the demonic being, those are created beings. Created. They don't have the same attributes of God. So therefore, there's no passage to say they can actually tell the future. So how does this work out then? And how is this stuff even still here? And it is still here. We just call it different things today. You know, we would never talk about going to the demon-possessed person, but you still see things of tarot cards, you still see things of horoscopes, you still see things of palm readings, etc. That stuff all has a demonic influence that comes along with that. So, if they really can't tell what's happening in the future, well, how can they see what's going on? You've got to remember a couple of things. This spiritual beings that have been around, they've been around for thousands of years and watching human nature for thousands of years. And when you watch something for thousands of years, you get to be pretty good at figuring and seeing what's going on. And I can give you a couple quick examples of this. Now, as far as I know, I'm not a fortune teller and I'm not demon-possessed. But we have two goats at our house I've told you about. Now, I'm not a fortune teller, but I can tell you right now, if I go home today and I go out to that goat pen and I have some food in my hand, those goats are going to come running at me full steam. Now, that's not telling the future. That's just knowing what's going to happen. And they're fainter goats, so they're going to run at me full steam and fall down halfway through because they really can't do it. I'm not a fortune teller. I'm not demon-possessed, but I could make a list, and I didn't mentally make a list, where some of you would sit this morning. I haven't been watching you for thousands of years, but I've been the pastor out here for 15 years, been teaching out here for 17, and you guys, I know where you normally sit. So much so that if you don't sit in the normal spot, I normally go up to you and say you're going to throw everything off by sitting in a different spot. We're creatures of habit. 
We know that, we see that, we realize that. So humans are humans. We may think we're all this unique thing, and yes, we're created uniquely, but a lot of the same things we go through, people are going through all over the world. So with this being said, by them watching human nature for thousands of years, they become experts on that, if you will. So what you see here is this gal, and look what she says. Look at verse 17. If you ignore the first part about her being a demon-possessed girl, verse 17, these men are the servants of the Most High God who proclaim to us the way of salvation. That really is a good comment. These men are the servants of the Most High God who proclaim to us the way of salvation. There is nothing wrong with that statement. But you don't want that on as a job reference from a demon. And if you look at what Jesus did, when he was in the Gospels, anytime he got around anything with a demonic influence, one of the first things he did was told the demon to be quiet. Why? Because he didn't need the demons witnessing for him. He didn't want the testimony of the demons, because he would show up and the demons would say, Son of the Most High God, and Jesus would say, be quiet. Paul didn't want this gal following them around, because everybody in the town would know who she was, and therefore they would be associated with this. A present-day application... It's probably been 10, 15 years ago, I I lose track. We had kind of what I would call a fringe member that was coming out here to church. Popped out every now and then sporadically, really never got involved, but kind of had a little bit of a relationship. Had somebody from the community call me up and say, do you know so-and-so? I said, oh, yeah. They said, do they come out to to church there? I said, I mean, yeah, I guess so. I said, why? And they said, well, do you know what they're doing? I said, no. I said, well... They're going out on Friday nights, going to the parties, getting drunk, getting high, witnessing to people and telling them to come out to harvest. That's not the witness we want. But that's what happens. And you can see the same type of witness right here. What she was saying was true. But that's not the testimony you want. So Paul, greatly annoyed, greatly distressed, depending on your translation, turns around and says, out. By the power of Jesus, out. And amen to that. Now you would think that we'd all stop and rejoice. This young gal that was a slave, a demon, and now she's set free. You would think this would be a point of rejoicing. You would think this would be a point of celebration. No. The world only cares about the world. What happens now? Verse 19. When her masters saw that their hope of profit was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to the authorities. And they brought them to the magistrates and said, These men being Jews exceedingly trouble our city and they teach customs which are not lawful for us, being Romans to receive or observe. Then the multitude rose up together against them, and the magistrates tore off their clothes, commanded them to be beaten with rods, and when they had laid many stripes on them, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to keep them securely. Having received such a charge, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. There's no concern for this gal. The only thing they're concerned about is their loss of profits. That's the world. That's the world's response to something along this type of line. The Christian response is what set this gal free. The world's response is, we lost our money. Paul and Silas thrown into prison. Now, we need to look at this. When it says in verse 22, they commanded them to be beaten with rods. In verse 23, they laid many stripes on them. If you really study this out in the original language, this, this is a beating. You know, there were rules set up. And if you're a Roman citizen, they only could do so much. If you're a Jewish, you only could do so much. What happens here with Paul and Silas, they seem to toss all those rules out the window. And these guys are beaten. They're beaten so severely that in a few verses, we see them having to clean Paul's wounds because of how much he went through. This is not just knock you down, rough you up. This is a beating. 
And after you get done with the beating, you're now thrown into prison. And not just thrown into prison, you're thrown into the inner prison. And not just thrown into the inner prison, now your feet are set in stocks. Verse 24. Have you ever done something good and it came back to bite you? Paul, Silas, did good. Testifying, witnessing, demons cast out. What's the result of this? Beaten, prison, inner prison, feet in stocks. That's a rough thing. This is why sometimes it almost reaches a point where you stop and you say, is it really worth it? I think sometimes as Christians, we see this, we reach a point where we say, you know what? I really think if I could just fly under the radar, love Jesus, serve Him, but serve Him quietly, fly under the radar, not make any waves, and just get to heaven. Here's the thing. If you want to go out there and be an enlightened witness for the Lord and really, really make an eternal difference with your friends, your family, your co-workers, there is the potential for persecution. That's just a fact. And I think too often as Christians, we take the easy path. Where sometimes the Lord is saying, take a stand. What happens when you take a stand? Well, sometimes verses 23 and 24 happen. But let's even go past verses 23 and 24. Maybe right now you're going through difficulties and, you're, and it's not even because you took a stand, it's just life. You know, maybe you're suffering physically right now. Maybe there's something difficult. Maybe you're suffering emotionally right now. It's been a rough week, month, year, what have you. Maybe you're suffering spiritually where you just feel like you're praying out and there's no answer. So you may not be beaten. You may not be in the inner prison. Your feet may not be in stocks, but maybe spiritually speaking, you feel that way. You feel like you're spiritually beat up. You spiritually feel like you're in prison. You spiritually feel like your feet are in stocks. And you've just lost all focus. What do you do? What about verse 25? But at midnight, Paul and Silas are praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. How about that? The next time you feel that, how about you start singing hymns? How about you start praying? Boy, isn't that the last thing on our mind when we're going through difficult times? I mean, it really is. If we're suffering physically, and, and you are laying on the couch, you're laying in that hospital bed, and this type of immense physical pain, generally speaking, this is not the time where you stop and you say, well, I just really feel like singing Amazing Grace. Or maybe emotionally you're going through a difficult time, you're in a difficult relationship, things are just tough at work, at home, at life. That's not the time where you stop. Boy, things are so bad, Lord, I just want to praise you right now. See, verse 25 doesn't make sense. It doesn't in any way whatsoever. Because we've reached a point as a society, even as Christians, where things are bad. Boy, we don't see anything good in it in any way whatsoever. And really what the Lord is saying, and no matter how bad it is, there's still an opportunity to sing, to praise, to keep your focus on Him. Now, generally at this time, we run into somebody who mentally is thinking, but... And I've sure this as you before, but you don't know what I'm going through. And what happens is I make this point, and then usually I get a contact throughout the week saying, I heard what you said, or I'll talk to them throughout the week, and something will pop up, and I'll say, don't you remember on Sunday we talked about singing and praying during these difficult times and being a light and a witness? And they'll say, yeah, but. And really what they're saying is, I have an escape clause. I hear what you're saying, but my situation is so tough, so rough, that I'm allowed, I'm allowed to be upset by this and bothered by this, and I'm not expected to be carrying praise and prayer and witness during this difficult time. That's just a bunch of baloney. That we start thinking that my situation is so bad, God up in heaven steps back and says, yep, you, you can, you, 
You can really be bothered by this one. I don't expect you to pray through that one. No. See, I've noticed that most of the time we can handle one thing. When it starts becoming a couple things, it's tough. You know, you don't feel good physically. Okay, I can handle that. Okay, but I don't feel good physically and it was a bad day at work. Okay, that starts getting rough. I don't feel good physically. It was a bad day at work. I get home and it's a bad day at the family. And these two, three, four things start adding up. And then we reach a point of basically saying subconsciously, I have a right to be angry, frustrated, upset, ticked off, whatever. And basically these passages get to go out the window because there's an escape clause. I just want to share this real quick. This is just a little story that um, John Corson shared. John Corson is one of my favorite pastors. Thoroughly enjoy reading him and listening to him. And he was talking about something he went through one time. He says, after teaching at a retreat in Palm Springs, I decided to go for a walk. It was about 9.30 at night, and it was about 95 degrees outside. Walking briskly down Palm Canyon Drive, I was reading the Word and thinking about this text, verse 25, about singing and praying. Thinking about this text... When failing to see a puddle in the middle of the pavement, I lost my footing, fell flat on my back, my glasses flew off, my Bible landed in the middle of the street, and I lay there in the mud and blood, rejoicing and thinking what a great illustration it would be for this study. Feeling pretty good, as I picked up my Bible and glasses, I continued on. About three miles of walking and reading, my foot hit a crack. And this meant causing me to lunge forward, break my sandal in the process. Knowing I had to walk back barefoot for five miles on hot cement, I wasn't rejoicing thinking one trial per walk should be sufficient. When the second one came my way, I was far from singing. By the time I got back to the hotel, it was 11.30. My feet were cut. I was upset. And the Lord whispered in my ear, You see, John, it's not the expected trial that reveals where you're at. It's the one that sneaks up behind you that shows what's really going on inside. Boy, that's the truth. You know what? If you really want to see what type of Christian you are, spiritually, emotionally speaking, go through a beating, be in prison, and have your feet in stocks. Tell me if you're still singing and praising the Lord at that time. And I don't mean that as some type of threat. I'm saying, that's the truth. That's the truth. Because they were singing and praying, verse 25, but the key thing is the rest of verse 25. The prisoners were listening to them. They were listening. See, Paul writes that there's this phrase that he goes, you have a sphere of influence. And that sphere of influence, people are paying attention to. You know, you may sit here and try to convince yourself that no one pays attention. If I'm having a bad day, if I give up on the Lord, no one notice or see. That is not true. There may be people that you've never had a conversation with the Lord about, but yet they still know where you live, they still know what you think, they still know what your walk is as a Christian, and they're listening to you to see how you handle difficult times. So, can we pray and sing in the times of tribulation and trial? I hope so. But let's go one step further. We have a tendency sometimes to sing and praise in the time of tribulation publicly. We come into church. People know what we're going through. Maybe it's been a difficult day, a difficult moment. Oh, no, God's getting me through it. Amen. Hey, just pray for me. The Lord's really been good to me. So that's what we do publicly. Privately, we let our guard down then. And then our spouse, our kids, see the real side of us. Here's the thing I've come to conclusion on. I want to be a light and a witness to you and all that I say and do into the world. But my greatest ministry are those five boys that I'm raising. And I don't want to be fake in front of them. Because I can fake it in front of you guys really easily. And I don't say that to say that I am. Maybe I am. But I'm not trying to say that to say I am. Because you don't know because I'm good at faking it. Point is, I can't fake it in front of my kids and my wife. And that's the thing. I want to make sure. I look at verse 25. And it says, the prisoners were listening to them. I just changed the word prisoners. In my mind... And my wife was listening to me. My boys were listening to me. How am I going to handle those difficult times? Because this 
This is the first step in a process to see this guy get saved. So what happens to the jailer? Let's find out. Verse 26, suddenly there's a great earthquake. So the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's chains were loosed. And the keeper of the prison, awaking from sleep and seeing the prison doors open, supposing the prisoners had fled, drew his sword and was about to kill himself. Quick stop right there according to Roman law. If you're the officer in charge of the prisoners and your prisoners escape, the penalty could be death. So basically he's saying, I messed up. I might as well just take care of this myself. Verse 28, Paul called with a loud voice saying, Do yourself no harm, for we are all here. Then he called for a light, ran in, and fell down trembling before Paul and Silas. And he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and all who were in his house. And he took them that same hour of the night, washed their stripes, and immediately he and all his family were baptized. Now, when he had brought them into the house, he set food before them, and he rejoiced, having believed in God with all his household. This is a neat story because you get a chance to see what had to happen to get this guy saved. And let's just break this down real quick. First things first is there had to be an earthquake. His foundation had to be shaken. I've come to this conclusion. People can be saved by the love of God. It happens. I've seen it where people just realize the love Jesus has for them and that impacts them and they want to know Christ. I've also seen people get saved according to the book of Jude by the preaching of the fear of hell. They stop and they say, okay, hell's real. I don't want hell. What do I need to do? But the majority of the people get serious with the Lord in verse 26 when the foundation of their life gets completely shaken. That's what gets their attention. So the first thing that had to happen, this guy's foundation had to be shaken. Now, it happened literally, but it had to be shaken. Now, the next thing that happens is verse 28. Paul's still there. Now, put yourself in Paul and Silas' position. You're praying, you're singing hymns, all of a sudden there's an earthquake, chains off, doors open. What would you think? The Lord opened a door and go, right? That would be my first thought. And if Paul said something to me, if I'm Silas, saying, I know, I feel like we need to say, we need to stay here as a witness, I would say, God bless you, I'm out of here. (laughs) Paul stayed. Have you ever been witnessing to someone or had a burden for someone in Christ and every ounce of you just wanted to give up and go? Paul stayed. So the foundation is shaken. It's shaken so bad, verse 27, the guy wants to take his own life. He's given up. Paul's still there. And look at verse 30. Sirs, what must I do to be saved? There's an honest asking of what needs to happen. I run into this a lot out here. Uh, People contact me and say, hey, I, I got a cousin, I got a friend, I got a sister, I got a brother, fill in the blank. They really want to know about the Lord, will you contact them? Now, my first response normally is, how about you contact them? Because it always carries more weight coming from someone you know. If you just bring in this outside person that just randomly says, hey, I heard you want to know about Jesus, it's better if they know you. But I'll, I'll try to contact. And what happens is I'll contact, and a lot of times the conversation just goes nowhere. They don't respond to the text. They don't call back. They don't show up. And then I'll tell them, hey, I tried calling that person, but no response. They're like, oh, keep trying. Keep trying. What I've come to the conclusion is, if somebody really wants to know about Jesus, guess what they're going to do? Verse 29, they're going to run in with the light. In verse 30, they're going to say, what must I do to be saved? See, if you really want to know about Christ, you're going to put effort into that. Because it's a personal choice for you where you stop and you say, I want this. I want this. So, foundation shaken. 
Paul's still there to witness. He desires it, verse 30. And then what happens? Verse 31, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. Verse 31 is almost too simple, isn't it? See, we've taken salvation and we have now complicated it. One of my favorite verses is out of 2 Corinthians 11. It's verse 3 where it talks about the simplicity of Jesus. You hear me quote that a lot. How simple Jesus is. And Jesus even went one step further to make it simple. John 14, verse 6. I am the way, the truth, and life. No one comes to the Father but by me. One way. It's a direct flight to heaven through Christ. We complicate that. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And then he goes one step further. Verse 31. You and your household. Now before you take that to mean some type of umbrella salvation... This guy gets saved, and so everybody else with him gets to come in. I consider it more of a domino effect. This guy's going to get saved. And then you see what happens here in verse 32. They go to his house and speak to his family. It's a domino effect. And I've seen this over the years. It's fascinating to see. You see one person show up. One person. A few months later, they got them and maybe a family member. Then you go a few months later, and then it's them and a couple family members. And next thing you know, they're taking over a whole row. It's this domino effect. And how great is that to see? This is what happens with this jailer. He gets saved, brings him back to his house, verse 32. They preach to his family, and their family gets saved. The domino effect. See, if you've been so touched by Christ and what he's done in your life, how can you not bring your loved ones into it? You know, every now and then you run into that person and says, Oh, I love Jesus. I just don't really feel I'm called to be open about it. Well, I think Jesus would disagree with you on that. That's part of what we do is this openness of who we are, of making disciples. This has really been our push here for this last study since basically this spring. We're called to make disciples. Disciples make disciples. I've been impacted by Christ. I want to go impact other people for Christ. As they are impacted for Christ, they want to go impact others. And you see how it spreads, this beautiful domino effect. How do we know this guy's legit? Verse 33, and he took them that same hour and night, washed their stripes. To put that together, very possibly, the same guy that caused the beating and the bruising and the stripes on Paul is the same guy that also tries to help him. That's a sign of repentance. How much time elapsed between verses 22 and 23 and then in verse 33? I mean, it's quite possible just a few hours earlier, this jailer was pounding on Paul and Silas, beating them to a pulp. And then a few hours later... They're at the jailer's house, and he's trying to wash their wounds. Wow. That's a sign of repentance. What's the ultimate result of this? Verse 34. He set food before them, and he rejoiced, having believed in God. How many times have we ended with that word rejoice? There's joy in this. So now there's two ways to take this. Way number one. First off, are you saved? We've got to start there. Are you the jailer? Has there been something, verse 26, a great earthquake in your life where the Lord has shaken the foundation of your life to get your attention? If he has, pay attention. There's people, verse 28, that want to be a witness to you. Now the question comes up of, do you want verse 30? Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Do you want that? Because if you want that, the simplicity of verse 31 is believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Now we need to talk about this word believe, though. Because believe has become watered down. Do you believe in God? Well, of course I do. Do you believe in Jesus? Well, yeah. Do you believe in what Jesus Christ did on the cross? Sure. Well, then obviously you're saved. Well, 
book of James says that even the demons believe. See, the problem is we have now made the word believe intellectual belief. I intellectually believe that there is a God. I intellectually believe that Jesus existed. I intellectually believe that what Christ did on the cross is salvation. I believe those things. Okay, but have you made it your life? See, that word believe carries this element of putting my trust in it. So if you put your trust in it, amen. But here's the catch. I run into a lot of people, and I'm not saying this to pick, that believe in Jesus, call themselves Christians, and think they're saved. But when you look at their lifestyle, you stop and you say, well, what has God saved you out of? Because you're living and acting the same way you did before you got saved. Part of having a Savior means that He has saved you, He has changed you. Things have been different. There are signs of repentance. If you're the same that you were before you got saved and after you got saved, we have to stop and ask, did you ever taste salvation? There needs to be a change. Now, be careful. This is not a works-based salvation. Please don't look at it as, oh, you're saying that the way I'm saved is by doing things. No, by the way we see salvation in you is things happen. You've changed on how you live and how you act. This guy, we see salvation, we see repentance. He brings them into his house, feeds them and washes their wounds. Quite possibly the same wounds that he caused. Can you imagine his wife? Honey, I'm bringing some prisoners home. Can you make them supper? Can you bandage them up? What happened to you? Jesus is what happened. See, jump back to the demon-possessed gal. They're more bothered they lost their money than rather than her being healed and saved. Go back one step further to Jesus casting out demons in the Gospels. Do you realize how many times Jesus cast out a demon in the Gospel and the people were more afraid after it happened than they were of the demon-possessed person? What does that mean? Some of you that can remember before you got saved and after you got saved, people were more uncomfortable with you after you got saved than they were before. Like you quit drinking, that really freaked them out. You quit cussing, and like they're completely flipped out now, they don't know what to think. You don't talk the same, you don't act the same, and so therefore they almost walk in this weirdness and fear of who you are, because if you would talk and cuss and act like you used to, okay, that's comfortable, man. See, here's the thing. If you really want to be a Christian and you really want to walk in this world, you are strange. The Bible calls you a peculiar person. We go to the pastor's conference once a year, and there's hundreds of people at this pastor's conference, and I always sit back and I look at all these people at this pastor's conference, and I can't help but thinking, there are some of the strangest people I've ever met in my life. And I'm thinking, Lord, why can't you just save a normal person? I mean, somebody that would be just kind of like, because God sometimes goes for the oddballs. Not here, obviously. <laughs> Keep convincing yourself of that. But the point is, there's a strangeness to us. And if you really want to walk as a Christian in this world, you're going to be different. You're going to talk different. You're going to walk different. Your marriage is going to be different. You're going to act different. You're going to dress different. It's going to be different. And that difference is what people see. Verse 25, they heard the hymns. They heard the prayers. They were listening. People are listening to your life right now. And they're trying to see. So, believing is more than just saying, I believe in a God. I believe in Jesus. I believe in His. No, I place my trust, my life in Him, and my life can and will never be the same again. Just ask yourself a simple question. When you say you believe in Christ, what are you really saying? 
Are you just saying you believe he existed and you like what he said and you want to go to heaven? Are you saying, no, I so believe this that my life can never be the same. Never be the same. I was having the boys do something for devotions yesterday. And one of the words that they had to study out was, was being called a radical Christian. And they said, Dad, what's the word radical mean? So I was trying to explain what it means to be a radical Christian. And as I'm explaining it, I'm feeling this check in my spirit saying, are you that? Boy, I've gotten comfortable. Isn't it easy to get comfortable as a Christian? I mean, it really is. You read, you pray, you witness, you just live the life. Boy, I don't want to do that anymore. The more I studied the book of Acts, and the more I realized these guys and gals were so willing to put their life on the line that they didn't think about anything else about just Jesus. And that's, I tell you, that's what I want now. I've reached such a point now where, you know what, so much stuff that happens in life, it doesn't really matter. And to be quite honest, don't take this the wrong way, and please don't ask for my resignation. There's so much that happens within the bounds of what we call church that really just doesn't matter. Isn't it about souls getting saved? I mean, isn't it about people being discipled and marriages being healed? And it's amazing how we get caught up in the drama sometimes of church stuff. It's like, come on, eternity, hell, heaven, souls, that's what matters. And you see these guys just being passionate for that. That's what it means to believe. That's what I want. Okay, let's say you have that. What do you take out of this? One quick point here before we move on. This jailer caused stripes and beatings and bruises on Paul. And this jailer came back and helped set them and wash them and clean them. Real quick question. Have you bruised anybody this week? With your words, your tone, your action? Part of being a Christian is if you have bruised somebody this week, you've caused wounds and stripes on somebody, you have a responsibility to say, hey, I'd like to come back and wash those wounds, and I'm sorry. They may choose to reject that, and there's nothing you can do about it. But just, I think sometimes as believers, we need to stop and ask, have I caused stripes on somebody? Have I caused harm on somebody? Do I need to go tell them I'm sorry? My words, my tones, my actions do not line up with Jesus of the Bible. If so... Just like the Philippian jailer, go wash their wounds. They may not respond to it, but you did your part of trying to say, I'm sorry, and I want things to be different. Let's finish this up, verse 35. When it was day, the magistrate sent the officer saying, let these men go. So the keeper of the prison reported these words to Paul saying, the magistrates have sent to you to let you go. Now therefore depart and go in peace. But Paul said to them, they have beaten us openly uncondemned Romans, and have thrown us into prison. And now do they put us out secretly? No, indeed. Let them come themselves and get us out. Stop here for a second. I've always struggled with this passage. I think, I think the world of Paul. Paul, the man the Lord raised up to take the gospel to the Gentiles. The man that the Lord really wanted to use wrote a huge chunk of the New Testament. This pillar of faith. You read verses like verse 37, and sometimes you say, come on, Paul, don't be a jerk, man. Just go. I've always struggled with this. What's he trying to do here? Because it almost comes across as the spoiled little three-year-old. You hurt me. I'm not leaving until you say I'm sorry. And I'm just going to sit here and hold my breath until the magistrates come and say I'm sorry. Verse 38, and the officers told these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard they were Romans. Then they came and pleaded with them and brought them out and asked them to depart from the city. Do you know somebody like that where it's almost like if you say, I'm sorry, it's not good enough? It's like, get on your knees and beg, you know? It almost seems like what Paul's doing. And I struggled with this, saying, what is the point of this? Finally, I read in a commentary one time where the guy said he feels Paul did this to protect the church. Because look at verse 40. 
So they went out of the prison and entered the house of Lydia, and when they had seen the brethren, encouraged them and departed. If Paul would have left secretly, just like they said, just, just get out of here, basically it would be no harm, no foul, nobody knows about this, the magistrates, the officers, they did something wrong, but Paul's gone, so just nobody needs to know. By them coming openly to Paul, basically saying, we are sorry, what Paul is actually doing is putting a hedge of protection around this young church at Philippi. Because if he would have snuck out, don't you think the officers would have had no qualms about doing this to any other person that claimed the name of Jesus? But by Paul saying, you can't act this way, you can't do this, and then he openly goes to Lydia's house, verse 40, and to the brethren, it's almost like he's saying, guys, the officers of the town know, the magistrates know, they're going to leave us alone. It almost looks like he was doing that for the protection of the brethren. And I like that. I like seeing him stand up like that. Now, we covered a lot of area here. Let's just stop here for a second and just hit these high points. What you see in this area is you see Paul and Silas willing, willing to take that beating, go to the inner prison, be feet in stocks, and as they're going through this tough time, still having verse 25, praying and singing hymns. Just ask yourself this week, and I've joked with you about this before. Now that you've heard this lesson, you're going to have to live this. Either you had a bad week this week, bad month, and you're sitting here this morning saying, Amen, I passed. I gave God the glory. Or you're sitting here this morning saying, I didn't pass. Guess what? You have to do it again. Or you had a really good week, and this means your next week's going to be really bad. Sorry, I'm just telling you. God is going to say, do you mean this? Do you mean that you can pray and praise during the time of trials and tribulations? Because why? People are listening to you. You may not think they are, but they are. They are. I know people that try to convince themselves that, oh, what I do spiritually has no effect on anybody. That is not true. It affects them. Number two, this Philippian jailer, his foundation of his life was shaken. Shaken so much that he was going to take his own life. But then he came and met Christ, and you see a changed man that's now walking in joy. And for us, maybe you're already saved here. Are you willing to stay in the jail to be a light and a witness to somebody? Is your passion to see souls saved that big? That you're willing to say, I'm willing to go through these uncomfortable times to be a light and a witness for Christ. Because people are watching me. And ultimately, have I caused stripes and harm on somebody? If so, I may need to go back there and offer to wash that and say, I'm sorry. That is part of being that believer. is not only being willing to tell, tell God you're sorry, but sometimes going and telling that person I'm wrong as well too. Glenn, if you can come forward here for the final song. I just want to remind you, next Sunday about the uh, Adams Grove group coming out. I hope you guys can come out and be blessed by that. And one other thing, too, Jonathan wanted us to reiterate, you know, teens, if you're going to go on that uh, Mud Dog Challenge on Wednesday, there's permission slips back there to the right. Make sure you do that there as well. Let's pray as I get ready here. Lord, as we come to you now in the name of Jesus. Lord, help us to have such a passion for you that we're willing to stay in the jail for you, no matter what the circumstances. Help us to praise and pray during those difficult times be a light and a witness for you and all that we say and all that we do. Lord, if there's somebody here this morning whose foundation has been shaken, show them, show them that you are there to be that, that solid foundation of their life and that you care and they can be saved through you. Oh, Lord, thank you for that. We love you and we praise you in your name. Amen. If you have any questions about any of that, salvation, what does it mean to be saved? 
don't hesitate to grab me because I'm back there shaking your hands to leave. If you can't grab me, grab Renee, grab Rich, somebody. We don't want you to leave this building here today with wondering. We're here to help and point in the right direction. 